Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, we are going to be back for a second week in Isaiah chapter 37. And so you're going to need a copy of God's Word. So if you need one, there is a hardback black version on the pew in front of you. You can turn to page 596. Is where we'll start Isaiah chapter 37. So grab your phone, tablet, your copy of God's Word, because you'll need that this morning. As you turn there, we're going to turn our attention back to November of 1858. John Patton and his wife have recently arrived on the island of Tana in the New Hebrides as new missionaries. This is a remote island in the South Pacific, which you probably know as Vanuatu. If you watch Survivor circa 2004, season 9, I've forgotten who the winner was, but you know that island from that series. So this is about as remote and removed from civilization as one could be, especially in the 1850s. So consider the ruggedness, the remoteness, the disease, the lack of facilities. None of those things exist. Then consider that these islands are full of pagan, wicked, warring tribes, most of whom are cannibals. A few years before the Patons arrived on the island, the first missionaries who set foot there were killed and eaten. Several missionaries had been run off. This was no tropical vacation or some competitive TV reality show. A few months after they arrived, Mrs. Patton and their infant son die from fever. John is left alone to continue the work by himself. He and his teammates face constant danger from disease and storms and accidents and from the natives themselves. Most of the islanders hated the missionaries. One day, Patton was followed around by a man carrying an axe. A few weeks later, he was chased around the island with a man bearing a loaded musket. The next day, he was attacked with spades and then rocks and arrows. One time, he was attending a sick man who was dying on his deathbed, and that man pulls a knife out and puts it on Patton's chest, ready to run it through his heart. Why continue this work? Why not flee the island and go back to Scotland, where it's relatively safe? Why does Patton and his teammates stay? It's the simple answer that they long to see the gospel taken to the islands of the New Hebrides, to see the pagans who once worshipped idols turn and serve the living God. He was committed to seeing the cannibals who once feasted on the corpses of their enemies now partake of the body and the blood of Christ. Patton had an overwhelming call and commission from Jesus to teach preach and survive on the island. It didn't matter if he was eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. He was going to stay and finish the work that God had given him to do. So what kept Patton and the other missionaries going? What maintained their hope? How did they have courage in the face of such unrelenting danger? What did they return to time and again to face the challenges and hardships that they faced? It's simple. It's prayer. Here's how he puts it. He says, Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I felt all in his hands and felt immortal till my work was done. Trials and hairbreadth escapes strengthened my faith and seemed only to nerve me for more to follow. And they did tread swiftly upon each other's heels. Without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my dear Lord and Savior, nothing else in the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. You see the connection? Prayer and the presence and power of Christ kept them 
going. In a particular violent episode, they were huddled in one of their houses and the natives set fire to their house and to their compound. And they huddled in the back room to pray. And as they were huddled, they hear thunder on the horizon. And God miraculously sends a rainstorm to quench the fire that's about to extinguish their life. He says this in response to that episode. He says, If ever in time of need God sent help and protection to his servants in answer to prayer, he has done so tonight. Blessed be his holy name. In fear and in joy we unite our praises. Truly our Jesus has all power, not less in the elements of nature than in the savage hearts of the Tannies. Precious Jesus, does he not chide us, saying, Until now you have asked nothing in my name? Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. How much help, blessing, and joy we lose every day because we do not take it all to Jesus as we ought. Often since I have wept over his love and mercy in that deliverance and prayed that every moment of my remaining life may be consecrated to his service of my precious friend and Savior. Patton practiced unceasing communion with Christ in prayer. It's a life of bold and desperate prayer. In the midst of such challenges most of us would run away from, Patton presses in, and he receives deliverance and endurance time and time again. So if you have time this summer, I highly recommend his biography. It reads like a thriller. It is a novel of God's ongoing work and salvation in Patton and his teammates. Patton presses into the Lord in prayer with hopeful prayer. And shouldn't that be our challenge or our response to challenges and hardships and troubling times that we face as well? Too often we go to so many things before resorting, I guess I'll go to God in prayer. We may not face the cannibal or some guy chasing us around with a musket or the warring army at our gates like Hezekiah, but we must give everything to God in prayer. Hear that quote again. He says, How much help, blessing, and joy we lose every day because we do not take it to Jesus as we ought. So as we come to Isaiah chapter 37, we're going to see Hezekiah and the people do the same thing that John Patton and his teammates did. They go in the midst of challenges, in the midst of hardships, and find hope, and their hope is strengthened and nourished by prayer. So if you remember last week when we were in Isaiah chapter 36 and chapter 37, we see Hezekiah and Jerusalem facing dual threats where there's a marauding army, the greatest army on the planet, have come knocking on their doors. And then at the same time, Hezekiah the king finds out that he is sick with a fatal terminal disease. So the Assyrian army has been ravaging the countryside, have come up to Jerusalem to overthrow it and to kill Hezekiah. The question posed then is the same question that is posed to us now. Who do you trust? Where is your hope? Will we trust the things of this world to deliver us, or will we trust in Christ? It's the same challenge that comes to Patton on the island, the same question that comes to us. Will we trust in Jesus or in something else? So as we saw last week, Hezekiah and the people do trust in the Lord. They flee to him for refuge. They are delivered. The army of the Assyrians is defeated overnight, miraculously. The remainder of the army slinks back to Nineveh and never to be seen in Judea again. God has given new life to Jerusalem. He's given 15 more years to Hezekiah. God is working in their lives. 
And so from their experience, we're instructed and we are encouraged to keep going, to see our hope grow in the soil of faith, in God's providence, His proclamation, and His provision. But one aspect we didn't have time to focus on last week is what does Hezekiah do in the moment? What is he doing at the time that the Assyrian army comes knocking? We're going to see his response in Isaiah chapter 37, verses 1 through 4. And so let's read that from God's Word. The Holy Spirit, through the prophet Isaiah, says this, As soon as Hezekiah heard it, that's the threat from the army, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshika, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. In verses 5 through 13, we see the Rabshakeh deliver a threatening letter to Hezekiah that says, Hezekiah, don't get too comfortable. We may leave for a moment, but we'll be back, and we're going to come destroy you. And then Hezekiah responds in verse 14. So skip down, we'll read verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of King Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. So we're going to see from Hezekiah's response and from his prayer, we're going to dig four elements, four ways that prayer fortifies and nourishes our hope. Four ways that we can see hopeful prayer. And the first element that we see, the first way we see that prayer demonstrates godly humility. Prayer demonstrates godly humility. Because if you look in verses 1 through 4, you're going to see their posture, how they react. First of all, they, they are quiet. They go back. They don't speak to the army. They go back to speak to God alone. And they put on sackcloth which is kind of weird because we don't walk around in sackcloth, burlap sacks. But this is an outward expression of their inward disposition that they are in mourning. They are grieving. They are lamenting. They are tearing their clothes and putting on this sackcloth to show that there is nothing left. They have no strength. They have no ability. And this is a time of death. This is a collective experience. It's not just one or two. It's the whole congregation. They are mourning and they are desperate. Because doesn't prayer inhabit the time between desperation and deliverance? 
This is what Hezekiah is saying. He said, this is the time of distress, of rebuke, of disgrace. And he says, Lord, everything is laid waste by the Assyrians and we're next. They're coming for us. Without you intervening, Lord, the people of Jerusalem are hopeless. They know that there's nothing that can or will be done unless the Lord acts for them. And so they approach the Lord and they lay it out all in front of him. There's nowhere else to turn. This is a desperate moment. There's no hope on their own, so they're in mourning. And you see this attitude of submission. He goes in verses 14, he says, Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread the letter out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed. If you remember last week, in chapter 36, the word trust appears seven times. This emphasis on who do you trust? Who do you hope for? Who are you relying on? And this word alludes to the image of throwing oneself down on the ground, face down. It's a deep and utter dependence. So what Hezekiah is doing, he is exemplifying that word trust. He's going before God, taking the letter, and literally laying it out on the floor and says, God, you take care of this. I got nothing. He's not presumptuous here. He says, it may be that God will respond. So he takes everything he has in desperation and gives it to God. I don't know if you've ever done that, either metaphorically or physically. That is a, a picture of saying, God, I have no strength, no hope. So it's been several times in my life that I have physically done this. I remember being a freshman in college and had a huge decision about where to go to school next and what to do. And so I took the letters and the, the information and basically laid them out in my nasty dorm floor in the bottom of Evans Hall and said, Lord, I don't know what to do. You take care of this. Or a couple of months ago when I get a surprise insurance bill or surprise medical bill from Erlinger Hospital, hey, your insurance didn't cover this. And this is a five-figure bill. God, I don't know what to do with this. Lay it out before God. And God takes care of it. God provides. And so God gives direction. So do we submit and humble ourselves before the Lord? This is what Hezekiah does. He gets on his face and says, Lord, I have nothing left. Pick me up and take me home. So we see prayer demonstrates godly humility. The second, and this illustrates, God, or sorry, prayer seeks God's deliverance. So Hezekiah doesn't go and starts to make up his own army. He doesn't try to work the back channels to a political or military ally. He goes straight to God. And we see him address this God. We see that in verse 16. He says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the Lord, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. This is a master class of addressing the Lord. Because if you ever thought about when you come to God in prayer, how do you approach Him? How do you address Him? Hezekiah teaches us how. He says, you're the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, which is convenient because he's facing the most powerful army on the planet at the time. He says, oh yeah, general, master, Lord of the heavenly, the angelic armies, we need you. And you, the God of Israel, you are our God. You're enthroned above the cherubim. You live amongst us in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. And then I love this, you are the God. The definitive God, not a God, not one of the gods. He is the God, the creator, the sustainer of everything. 
So when we come to pray, we have to know who we are addressing. And so it's easy to go, hey, yeah, yeah, hey God, hey buddy, how you doing? We have this intimacy with God. We have to understand who we are coming to. This is the God, the God of the heavenly armies, God Almighty. And the more we know about God, the more we can understand and be clear about his character and his nature. The more robust our prayer life will be is based on how much we know about God and our hope and our faith are strengthened because we know who we approach and who we pray to. So Hezekiah comes and he lays himself and humbles himself and addresses the God of armies, the God, him alone. And he asks for things. In verse 17, he asks for five requests for God to pay attention. He says in verse 17, Incline your ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. But does God need an explainer? Does he need somebody to uh, like give him a news bulletin? Hey, you, you remember the, the king out here? Hey, you, you want to come look at him? Or think about how we pray. Yeah, Lord, you, you know Billy, he's got the, the thing, and he's got his wife, and he's lost his job, and you know, he lives down the street, and he's doing all these things. We try to explain to God what's going on. Does God forget? Is he not aware? Well, Jesus says, hey, your father knows what you need before you ask him. God knows what's going on. He's not asleep. He's not forgetful. He's not negligent. But why does Hezekiah ask for these things, for God to pay attention? Well, one reason, I think, is because God wants a relationship with us, with his people. And so he wants us to explain and tell him what's going on because he wants this relationship. It's the same thing when you go to your small child and he's trying to explain a story or a movie to you. And you know the, how the thing works out, but you're going to listen to them explain it because you love them and you want to hear from them. God wants that relationship. But I think the other reason that Hezekiah prays this way is because he knows that there is a possibility that the Lord would not hear and respond. Because if you read the context of the story, the people have been filled with idolatry rampant idolatry. They are proud. They are arrogant. They've turned away from God. So according to God's covenant, he says, if the people abandon me, if you go after idols, the Lord says, I will turn my back on you and send you into exile. This is the part of the covenant that God makes with them. And Hezekiah knows this. That's why he has strived for years to bring reform to the people, to bring humility and to turn the nation and himself in his heart back to God. He has spent time having a large scale of spiritual reformation and revival in Israel. He's kicked out the idols. He's cleansed the temple. He's reinstituted the Passover. He's reorganized the priest. He's demolished these idols, these pagan altars, because Hezekiah knows that God will not respond to their prayers while they worship other gods. He knows that their posture must be one of humility and repentance. They know that this God is a God of justice and righteousness. But Hezekiah knows the other side of the covenant, that God will be merciful and gracious when he humbles himself before him. God is coming 
to respond. The question is, to us and to Hezekiah, well, how is God naturally disposed to his people? When we knock on the door of heaven, how is God going to act? Is he going to instinctively strike and condemn us? Is he going to lash out in anger? Like if you interrupt your dad when he's at work, is he going to just shout at you for disturbing him or get angry or irritated? We may think that God's like Zeus, ready with a, a, a bag full of lightning bolts, ready to strike us if we come to him. But if we look at the testimony of Scripture, and if we look at Isaiah in particular, God's first inclination towards his people is with mercy, compassion, and with grace. God's natural disposition is one of love, not of judgment and destruction. Towards those who are humble and repentant, God is kind, compassionate, and merciful over and over and over again. God is ready to respond with compassionate care. That's why God answers Hezekiah here, because Hezekiah knows that he has nothing left. He depends on God alone, and he humbles himself. So we can see this illustrated later in Hezekiah, when, or later in Isaiah, when Isaiah says this in chapter 55. He says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So when we come to God asking for him to respond, he is naturally inclined to give us what we need. Like a good father, he will give us the good gifts that he has bestowed upon us. But if we stand in prideful opposition to God, saying, God, you meet my demands. You come and do what I want. God, I'm going to punch the, the vending machine and you give me the blessing that I deserve. God doesn't respond this way. But look how Peter sums it up. So for, in 1 Peter chapter 5, he, Peter says this, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. So you can see these two first points come together here, that we come with godly humility and we come seeking God's deliverance. So Peter says, Humble yourself, have the proper posture, and then come with the proper plea, casting all your anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. And he will exalt you. And he's eager to help us. And this is why Hezekiah can come with a final simple request is for God's salvation. So in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 20, he says, God, you want, we want you to get the victory, so now, O Lord, save us from the hand of the king. This simple plea is for God to come and save his people. And despite many earlier failures, Hezekiah finally gets it right. And he lands in the right spot, and he comes to God and God alone. The only hope that he and the people have is for God to save them. So having come to understand where true hope lies, he can do nothing else. Have we learned that lesson? Have you learned that lesson? When we live in a desperate space, where is your hope and deliverance found? Where, what are you going to? What are you praying to? Who are you asking for deliverance? And too often I think we look to the gods of the world with money and relationships and education, with career, with power, or with fame. If I have any of those things, everything will be right and good. Then I can have hope. 
But all of those things are like the kings and gods and idols of Hezekiah's day. They really are nothing. They are empty. They will be overrun by some other power or terror. These are phony redeemers, phony fake saviors who are not able to save because they're not saviors at all. Therefore, we must look constantly to the Lord like Hezekiah does, come to him in prayer for our salvation. In the big areas and small areas, God cares for you. He wants and is eager to help you. He desires to show you mercy and compassion. So go to God in prayer and find the joy, help, and blessing that we need every day. And so it's, it could be easy for us to conclude that, yes, we need to pray in our everyday life for the financial problems and relationship problems, the health needs. Yes, we trust God through the trials and he will bring you through these things. He will deliver us. We take heart that God hears our everyday prayers. And we should pray for God to deliver us through these small trials. And it would be easy for us to stop this sermon or our thinking there. But Hezekiah is not praying just for this immediate salvation in that moment. Yes, he's praying to simply survive the day, but his prayer is going beyond this moment and this time to something greater. When he prays for victory over the Assyrians, he's not praying that they would just last the next few moments. He's praying for something much larger. So think about your prayers and what we pray for on a normal, everyday basis. That's for ourselves, for our family, for our job, for our church. It's like we're only praying for our village. And so if you drop yourself back into Hezekiah's day, every village, every nation, every country had their own God. But when Hezekiah prays here, he's not praying just to a village God. But sometimes in application, we often pray just to a village God without a view to the wider world or universe or timeline that God is at work. And yes, we pray for ourselves, our families, our church, our village, but when we do that only, our gaze and our prayers are too narrow. They're too short-sighted. Because when Hezekiah prays to God, he isn't asking for salvation just for his little corner or his little town in some specific time and space. He's saying, God, save us and let this salvation echo around the world. That God's victory be manifested not just in my own life, Hezekiah, but that it will uh, rhyme and echo throughout eternity. So when Hezekiah is praying, he's praying for a much bigger victory. The victory of God here goes beyond saying in Jerusalem in Isaiah 37. And what is this bigger victory that Hezekiah is praying for? What should we be praying for? Well, it's twofold. It's the glorification of his name in all of the nations. And second, we're praying for the final victorious return of Jesus Christ. And so when we're praying, we need to stop praying just village prayers. We need to pray global, universal, ultimate prayers. And that's how Hezekiah teaches us to expand our prayers. So we see Hezekiah come with humility. We see him seeking God's deliverance. But third, we see prayer advance God's glory. Because if we think about our own prayers, and even Hezekiah's prayers, some of our, some of our prayers a lot of times are always self-serving. We only go to God when we want or need something, when we're desperate for something. I mean, leave him alone 
<clears throat> when we're satisfied with other things. So when I get the bill from Erlinger for a five-figure uh, price, I go, God, I don't have this money. And then God provides that, not the money, but the bill is just taken away with a phone call. Well, praise the Lord. And then, you know what? Everything's good now. I don't owe Erlinger thousands of dollars. Now what am I going to do? I can go spend the money how I want, right? No, because that's what we come to God, like the vending machine. Lord, I need this. You give me this. Thanks. I'll be back later. And it's easy to conclude that Hezekiah, yes, he's worried about himself and the people. Hezekiah does not want to be taken captive, impaled upon a stick, and let his body rot in sunshine. That's not on his weekend plans. So yes, he's, he's praying for those things, but it's not just for his personal deliverance, his comforts, or his needs to be met. His prayer exposes a bigger issue that's at stake, because when the Assyrians come to fight against Jerusalem, they're not coming just to destroy the city. They're not fighting against God's people. They're fighting against the God of these people. God's name and God's glory is at stake. And we see this a couple times. We see this in verse 4, when Hezekiah prays, it says, It may be that the Lord your God will hear the rebels of Ashikah, whom his master, the king of Syria, has sent to mock the living God. Then later, in verse 17, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear the words of the Rabshika, who has been sent to mock the living God. <clears throat> so when the Rabshika and the Assyrians have come up Jerusalem and all the other cities, they've said, hey, our God is more powerful than your God. That's why we've won and you've lost. And so our God, ashore is bigger than the gods of Hamath and Serevaim and all of these other little towns. And then your God, Yahweh, well, he's nothing to us anyway. We're going to conquer him as well. But what the Assyrians have come to do is conquer the city and their gods, and they've lumped Yahweh in with all these other gods. But what they didn't consider is this god was a little different. <clears throat> I love how Hezekiah agrees with him in verses 18 and 19 for a moment, and he says, oh yeah, those gods were conquered because you know what? They weren't gods at all. But Yahweh is not a local god presiding over some small village. He's the God Almighty, creator of the universe, sovereign over all the peoples of the earth. Yahweh isn't responsible for just a small portion of the cosmos like the God of rain or fertility or mixing bowls. This is the God who rules and reigns over every molecule in the known cosmos. This Yahweh isn't generated from a greater God <clears throat> or created out of the wishful thinking of men. He's from everlasting to everlasting. And he's in control over my voice. <clears throat> This God is not dead. <clears throat> he is not impotent. He is not deaf. He is not blind. He will not take the challenge lying down. God will rise up <clears throat> to defend his name, his glory, and his honor, and his fame. Verse 20. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord. This is what it's at stake. God's name is on the line. And then God answers in verse 35. For I will defend this city to save it <clears throat> for my own sake. 
So what we have here is a battle for supremacy, a battle for divinity. And Hezekiah knows this. Hezekiah is praying to God because God is the one fighting the battle because God's reputation is at stake. God's purpose here is to bring glory to his name through the salvation of Jerusalem, but not just the salvation of Jerusalem, but the salvation of all peoples in all times. Because when God says, I will respond for my sake and my sake of my servant David, he's saying that I am coming to save you, Hezekiah, and your family, because in 700 years I'm bringing another king, another son, one who will bring lasting salvation through all the world. And God is doing this so he will get credit, glory, and honor. And through struggling voices and being sick, may God be glorified. I love how Patton, going back to John Patton, he says this. Did ever a mother run more quickly to protect her crying child in danger's hour? Then the Lord hastens to answer believing prayer and send help to his servants in his good time and way, so far as it should be for his glory and for their good. What's at stake is not Hezekiah's life. It's the reputation of Yahweh, of the Lord, and of God himself. The knowledge and worship of Christ is greater, is of greater consequence than our lives and deliverance from anything that we face in the intermediate. We pray for the greater victory of God to defend his name and the final victory of God when Christ comes to save and redeem his people. <clears throat> but how does prayer and the victory of God relate? It brings us to our last point. Prayer precedes God's victory. I don't know if you caught this. Why does God respond to Hezekiah's prayer? Verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord spoken to him. So it's interesting to see the Lord's victory comes because Hezekiah prays. The victory of God is contingent upon Hezekiah's prayer. John Piper puts it like this, says the victory of God is coming and it will come by the means of your prayer. Your prayers don't have power in themselves, but they lay hold of the God who has all power and strength. So God is saying to us to pray for deliverance, for salvation, for victory. Not because you will be saved or God's going to treat you special, but we pray for God to be honored, glorified, and magnified through your deliverance. And we pray for the final victory of God, the coming of Christ in all of his splendor, all of his glory, well, he will defeat all of his enemies. He will reign supreme. This episode in Isaiah 37 illustrates what God is going to do at the end of time. That God will come to establish and consummate his kingdom over the whole planet, where the knowledge of God will cover the earth, where there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation coming to worship before his throne. 
This final victory is what we should be praying for. This is what Paul calls in Titus 2, our blessed hope, the appearing and glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what we pray for. And if you walk through the New Testament, we see God commanding these prayers and answering these prayers, that we should be praying for God to be victorious. And we see that God is working to save his people so he will be glorified and to remind us that there's a greater victory coming. And so let's remember John Patton again one last time. So Patton prays every day for God to spare his physical life. And is it so he can just live another day? Well, yeah, that's part of it. Patton doesn't really want to die. He definitely doesn't want to die a horrific, violent death and be eaten. But every prayer is for something greater. Everything he prays for is that he would remain alive, not for himself, that he remain alive and on the island so he could preach and teach the gospel. That they would be turned from their sins, that they would be saved to bring all glory to God. So Patton's prayer is not just for the moment, but it's for eternity. And God answers his prayers. Patton dies an old man. He spends his life sharing the gospel on the islands. And here's the result. He says, Recall what the gospel has done. On our own island in Tedum, 3,600 cannibals have been led to renounce their hedonism. In Fiji, 79,000. In Samoa, 34,000. On our New Hebrides, more than 12,000 cannibals have been brought to sit at the feet of Christ. Vanuatu, Fiji, and Samoa are Christian, overwhelmingly Christian nations because of Patton and his teammates in the 1850s. And a lifetime that God spared them from death so they would remain, so these who were once cannibal, idol worshipers, would turn to serve the living and true God in the person of Jesus Christ. So we pray in hope that, yes, we will be delivered in the immediate crisis, but we pray like Patton, like Hezekiah, that God will spare us and deliver us from dangers, toils, and snares, not so we would just be saved, but God's name would be magnified through this as we look to the ultimate victory that he will give. All the little intermediate victories that he gives us are evidence of what he will do in the end. So we pray urgently for God's victory in the world. This is our blessed hope. Not that we will just face tomorrow, but that we will face eternity as he comes with the ultimate victory. So hope, prayerful hope, is nourished and fortified knowing that we look forward to Christ coming again. This ultimate victory. So we pray in faith, we pray in hope, we pray for deliverance, and more importantly, we pray for Christ to return, for him to be glorified and magnified in every aspect of our lives. We pray that he will come to defeat his enemies, bring relief and salvation to his people, that Christ would come again to save us, to give us rest, and to bring his name to full and ultimate glory, where every tongue, tribe, every knee bows, saying, Jesus is Lord. This is our blessed hope. And we must continue to pray, Lord, come quickly. So we pray urgently. We pray with humility. We pray seeking God's deliverance. We pray for God's name to be magnified, knowing that our prayer precedes deliverance. 
somehow God has worked our prayers into his plan. So church, pray big prayers. Pray that God would be glorified and that God would be honored and pray that God will win deliverance in your, not just in your life, but the ultimate victory we pray for Christ's return. That is our blessed hope. So let's pray.